Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome to another episode of Success That Lasts. In this week's episode, we discuss at length and honestly entrepreneurship. Our conversation ranges from pre-formation to launch to even some creative hacks that will help you preserve your cash. If you're someone with experience, aspirations, or even interest in what a startup would be like, you're going to love this week's episode with Jerry Carlton of MX Law and Joe Sullivan of DeLap. Additionally, if you have kids or like kids, you'll also appreciate this episode. Amongst the three of us, I believe there's eight children, and one of them chooses to make a cameo. We're doing our best to continue to bring you great content and conversations despite a global pandemic, working from home, and virtual schools. Jerry and Joe are both respective leaders within their fields. Jerry Carlton was first a successful entrepreneur and somewhat accidentally discovered his passion for law only later to launch his firm after earning his law degree. Joe Sullivan is a CPA and a pillar within the Northwest startup and technology sector. He's helped clients that are pre-revenue all the way through an initial public offering or IPO. Sit back and enjoy two craftsmen discussing their craft. Chances are you're going to walk away with some great nuggets today. And without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Jerry Carlton and Joe Sullivan. All right, Jerry and Joe, we're live. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, we've not done this three-way conversation before, so it's our maiden voyage, but I'm pumped. I think we're going to cover some awesome stuff here over the next 40, 45 minutes. So, uh, Jerry, you're an attorney. Talk to us about what led you to this moment in time today where you're helping entrepreneurs and business owners throughout the Northwest, and ultimately, you're also a business owner, MX Law. So I'll let you take it from there. Tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to where you are today. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, happy to do it. And it's kind of a funny story. I mean, this isn't a normal way that you'd hear people coming to the legal profession. I'll start with the broad brush. I launched my first company right out of undergrad with a co-founder. We were creating a product that he needed that didn't exist. And we launched a company in a dining room in North Portland and learned every step of the way. It was only through the launch of that company that I ended up learning more about how business interacts with the law And I find it humorous now, but at the time, I didn't find it very humorous. I kept having frustrating experiences with legal. So here I'm trying to run this startup company. And I was just on a different page with my attorneys quite a bit. You know, Sometimes they would slap on legal blinders and tell me what the law said, but it had nothing to do with my reality. Other times, things were just more complicated than were actually applicable to me. And so just thing after thing after thing, it just kept building up, kept being a frustrating experience. But the straw that broke the camel's back, I got a $14,000 bill for a $12,000 fight. That was it. 
longer story, but I got in a fight with a consultant. Whole fight was over $12,000. He said I owed him. I didn't owe him a penny of that. Showed everything to my attorney because I got this nasty lawyer letter that said pay up or else. And that looked scary. Showed it to my attorney. Said, what do I do? He said, you know what? You're legally correct. Tell that guy to pound sand. Great. So I told him to pound sand. He sued me. I sued him. Fast forward to, I was in a hallway waiting to be deposed. And I had this aha moment and shame on me that I didn't have it sooner. But I said, wait a minute, you charged by the hour. What is this costing me? And that's when he told me, oh, don't worry, we're running a tidy ship. You're only around 14 grand. I said, Whoa, time out. You know, why on God's green earth would I pay more than the whole fight was worth? And I could have had all this time back and I could have been focused on other things and I could have been growing my company, but instead I was in this fight. No way. I went to the other guy who was actually getting deposed before me and said, hey, will you take nine? That guy said, yes. He said, yes, so fast. I wish I would have offered less, but I didn't. And I took turn to my attorney and said, and you get three. You know, my total here is 12. And I'm going to go to law school and find out what you jokers know so I never have to rely on an attorney again. Well, I followed through with that threat. I signed up for the night program at Lewis and Clark Law School, great law school. And I ended up running my company by day and going to class at night. And I watched these two worlds collide together. And quite sincerely, my intent at doing that was to add in-house counsel to my title as president and COO. thought that would be a useful thing to have. But as I sat in class and then went into the next day to run the company and then back and forth and back and forth, I watched these two worlds collide together. I watched how legal could empower business decisions instead of being a frustrating experience. And I watched how often something that looks like a legal issue is really a business issue. And that's what led to me switching careers, changing course. By the time I graduated from that four-year night program, I hired in my replacement at Keene and started practicing law and am an attorney today. That's phenomenal. And Emix was born. That's phenomenal. Yeah, Emix was born a few years after that. I, so I went into big law for four years, then formed Emix after that. And it's been an adventure ever since. It was born in your heart. You knew it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, my entrepreneur friends were taking bets on how long I would last as someone else's W-2. How long do you think Jerry's willing to go sell his time to other people for other people's profit? Eh, this doesn't feel right. Well, hey, we'll circle back on Amex and how that experience informs kind of who you are today as an advisor. But Joe, you and I have been in business together now for oh, eight or nine years. And so I was just kind of give our listeners a story of kind of how you came to be in the role that you are today, serving so many of the tech and biotech and the startup community from a tax and financial advisory perspective. Yeah, sure. And, and I'll just start by adding that I never get sick of hearing Jerry's story. It's interesting to me every time and I get a little new detail every time I hear it. Mine's not so interesting. You know, grew up in Central Oregon and then went to Oregon State initially for an engineering degree. You know, I worked in a farming and construction growing up and had an interest in building things with my hands. A couple of years into college, I realized I liked doing that stuff, but I really had an interest in the underlying business transactions. And so moved over to the College of Business and then chose accounting because I thought at that point, I can do anything with an accounting degree. It doesn't mean I have to be a CPA. It doesn't mean I have to work for an accounting firm. I could be a CEO, a CFO, kind of have any role in a business. So post-college, I moved up to Portland with the idea of earning my CPA license, and then I'd see what was next. And I started out at KPMG, uh, had a great experience, 
initially. And that's when I first started working with technology companies. They work with many of the larger technology companies in town and then had a great opportunity to move to a regional firm as well. So I spent eight years there, helped building a technology and biotech practice. And then right along the times, Jared, we started working together. I got to know you, some of the other partners at the lab. And really, what really drew me to DeLap was just the idea of being able to work with not only entrepreneurs like I'd grown accustomed to, but also closely held businesses, kind of a firm built specifically to serve the Portland market, which is predominantly mid-market businesses with complex issues that large firms just aren't built to handle. And so since that time, I've been working predominantly with technology and biotech clients, continuing to build that practice working with owners and founders in a variety of issues. And that's along those lines, how I've come to know Jerry so well. Awesome. So Jerry, as we kind of circle back on experiences that you had prior to your legal career, you hinted at it, but you were an entrepreneur first. And that's probably one of your primary identities is I am a business owner and I'm an entrepreneur and I help solve problems. But A common thread, a common denominator amongst most startups is that their problems exceed their cash. And so they have to be very mindful of cash. And we could have called this show the third bucket. There's the things we know, the things we don't know, but there's the dangerous third bucket, the things we didn't know that we didn't know. And that's the one that sinks us all. I've paid a fair amount of tuition to the real world, you know? And so as we think through those things you didn't know, you didn't know. I mean, you were an entrepreneur. I I love one of your stories about banking. We all pay obnoxious fees to the bank, but you found a loophole that I think is worth sharing with with our audience. Sure. Yeah. Happy to tell that story. So we were a bootstrap startup if there ever was one. I mean, again, we were in a dining room in North Portland, my co-founder and I looking across the dining room table. What do we do today? I don't know. Well, let's call someone who knows. And we'd call and we'd talk to other entrepreneurs and we'd talk to other business owners. And so many people were so friendly to give us their time, but we had no idea what we were doing. And we were just grasping at seeking funding to get product out to market. And you learn all of these things as you go and you hear all these cliches as you go too. Some of the cliches are true and some are not. Well, one of the cliches that is absolutely true is cash is king. It really is. And I can give a lot of examples, but Jared, the point you were just alluding to, I found out pretty quickly that having cash was important to everything we needed to do. And so whenever I found what I considered a free source of cash, I went after it and I went after it big time. We found that the bank we were using at the time had something called a five-star service guarantee. Part of that guarantee package was if you ever had to wait in line for more than five minutes, they would put $5 in your account. Now, this is coming from a practicing attorney now who will bill $650 an hour. Well, my time was so cheap to me back then that I would go to the bank every day with whatever checks we had to deposit. I'd pick the longest line to make sure that I'd be in line for at least five minutes. And then I'd get to the front and deposit my first check. And they'd put $5 in my account because I'd been in line for more than five minutes. And I knew about the five-star service guarantee. Then I would go back and get in the longest line again, wait my five minutes, and then deposit the next check. Well, it didn't take long before the bank branch manager found out about me, knew about me, knew me by name, and he'd see me walk in and he didn't want me tipping off all the other customers to the five-star service guarantee also. And so he'd say, hey, Jerry, how many checks you got? And I'd say, oh, I've got seven. Okay, come here. I'll put the 35 bucks in your account. Just, Just do the deposit with me. You don't have to hang out at the bank all afternoon. 
But yeah, we needed cash so bad, I would just find it anywhere I could. Uh, that was our funny little example. But I mean, we found tons of sources of non-dilutive capital. I mean, I was fundraising too, but it was 2001, dot bomb, it just happened. It was a hard time to fundraise. And so we found non-dilutive sources of capital too, like grants. We did a lot of grant writing and got grant funding. But one of my favorites was business plan competitions. I mean, I found, and I was at University of Portland for my undergrad. They had a business plan competition. We won first prize in that and got $10,000 cash. And I said, wait a minute, we just pitched our business plan and someone gave us money. This is great. And they found it pressworthy when you won these competitions. And so I approached the school and said, hey, will you pay for the airfare and hotel to send us to these other schools that have these competitions? And if we win, then it looks good because UP won another competition. Yep, they were happy to do it. So we got our expenses underwritten and we started hopping business plan competition to competition. We the top three prizes were always cash prizes. We always landed in the top three. I raised more than a hundred grand off business plan competition. And this was non-dilutive capital. Didn't have to give up any of the company, but it gave us the cash we needed to keep moving. Scrappy. Scrappy. I love it. <laughs> it certainly was. Joe, as you kind of explored all the different opportunities across the marketplace, you, you could have chosen a variety of different industries, but pretty early on in your career, you zeroed in on technology biotech, software space. What was it about that industry and the demographic, kind of the psychographic of the individuals that were attracted to that industry that became a source of passion for you professionally? Well, Jared, you just alluded to it using the word scrappy. I think what drew me to it was the founders that I was working with. They had big ideas, they were scrappy, and I loved the idea of helping them achieve their goals. And so you know, ever since I got that first glimpse into the industry, I've really been drawn to it and just love working with those founders, helping them achieve their goals. Yeah, if I could, I just get lit up when you talk like that, Joe. And that's why you and I get along is it takes a special kind of crazy to create something from nothing, to have the audacity to say, I'm going to create something where nothing exists. And I'm just going to look at the opportunity to succeed rather than all the reasons I'm going to fail. And that really describes why I love what I do too, is I get to work with these crazy people, these awesome, crazy people. And sometimes it also means we kind of direct someone on a different path because they're making some assumptions that are not correct about what it means to be an entrepreneur. I mean, one of my favorites is when I'll meet with a first-time potential client and they've always ever been an employee of a large organization and they're going to do a startup and they're so excited. I'll say, great. Well, why are you going to do a startup? Well, because I want to be the boss. Okay. Uh, why else? Well, can't wait to work half time. Whoa, time out. What do you mean? Work half time. I mean, you want to only work 12 hours in the day instead of 24? And just to try to open their eyes to when you're creating something from nothing, it's all on you. There isn't a committee. There isn't a group of people that are going to help. I mean, you've got to put it all together and it's all riding on you. And some people are not cut out for that level of stress. Other people, very much so. Yeah, when anyone ever says, I'm going to leave my day job so that I can take it easy and be an entrepreneur, yikes. You know, I just try to open their eyes a little bit to what it looks like to walk this journey. It's lonely. It's lonely. And it does take a special kind of crazy. You look at the odds of success. It takes a very optimistic and special form of crazy to walk into those odds. But it's awesome, too, because the passion that they have to change the world, to be positively disruptive within people's lives or within an industry's is energizing for sure. So Jerry, I guess my question would be then better than almost any other advisor, 
you understand that cash is king and that cash is so scarce as you waited in line to earn your $5 in your five minute line. How would you think about it in today's knowledge, right? Knowing what you know today, what's the difference between information and knowledge? And I guess, how would you speak to an entrepreneur knowing that cash is king and discerning where to spend money and where to save it? Sure. Yeah. So many potential examples. You might have to rein us in or or maybe we'll start with a few, but there's a huge difference in someone who can get to a result versus someone who can get to the right result. There's also a huge difference in prioritizing your spend. You know, with any entrepreneur, with any startup, there's going to be a whole host of things that need to be handled. But just knowing the priority order in which to take those can be hugely significant. Or something alluded to before, whether or not something is really a business issue or a legal issue. You know, so many entrepreneurs will come with just a whole list of needs and questions and wants and desires, and we'll just start power ranking them. Say, okay, well, these are all wants, these are all needs, these are all desires. What is most important? First, what is going to get you to cash flow? Cash is king. You know, or what is going to protect the core of what you're going to sell in this business later? Or how are we going to protect the intellectual property? But we walk through it one by one. And sometimes it really does take identifying this is not a legal problem. You do not want to run down a legal path. You know, an example I love to talk about, a lot of startups will get a cease and desist letter for a trademark fight. It looks like a legal issue. And sure, it can mature into a legal issue. But most of those are a business issue. If a huge company is sending a small company a cease and desist letter for a trademark fight, and the small company has a better trademark a lot of the time, the big company doesn't want to be in a fight just like the small company doesn't want to. The worst thing that can happen is to have a lawyer tell the entrepreneur, hey, don't you worry, your trademark is better. Let's go get these guys. We'll see them in court. An entrepreneur does not need to be in a two-year federal lawsuit that's going to cost a half a million bucks without breaking a sweat, even if they're right, because being right is too expensive. Instead, they need to call the big bad company and say, hey, look, our trademark's better, but I don't need to be in this fight. You don't need to be in this fight. Why don't you pay me to rebrand? And so many times that will take care of the situation. Every now and then it won't. We had one circumstance once where a very large company was attacking a awesome small Portland company. And the large company said, no way, we're not going to pay you a penny. We're going to squish you like a bug. They were very nice people. And we said, okay, well, then let's take it to social media. Took it to social media and said, hey, big bad company wants us to change our name. What should we change it to? The outpouring of support for that small Portland brand was so awesome The hate mail that went to the big bad company was so awesome. And by the end of it, this tiny little brand became a regional brand because they got so much free press out of the deal. They ended up changing their name and it was fine. But again, it wasn't a legal issue. It wasn't something that we needed to march into court and defend our trademark about. And so, I mean, for me, a big part of this is just ROI on legal issues. Is there a return on investment? Are you making the right spend? And Joe and I see this all the time together. I mean, I can't even tell you over the last few months how many times he and I have tagged each other in to client conversations we're having where having knowledge is the key. And it's way more important than rate or exact price tag for the transaction at issue. I'll give you one example. I know Joe can give more. One that we worked on recently where I got brought to the table for the sale of a company and looked at it and was already... The entrepreneur, the CEO was already a little skeptical about me because my hourly rate was higher than other attorneys that he had talked to. And so my transaction costs might be a couple grand higher than other attorneys he'd talked to. 
However, they were packaging this deal and they even had drafts of the deal documents and they were ignoring the applicability of section 1202 to this, that this could be qualified small business stock, that there could be a tax holiday for the seller in this deal if done correctly. And I said, wait a minute, you're, you, the attorney you're talking to right now doesn't know about this. The CPA you're talking about doesn't know about this. Let me call Joe. So I called Joe. Joe got brought to the table in the transaction. We repackaged the transaction as a 1202 transaction and the client saved hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. He would have volunteered those taxes based on the advisors that were in the transaction with him in that moment. And so sure, my hourly rate was a little bit higher than the guy that I replaced. Joe's hourly rate might've been a little bit higher than the guy that he replaced. However, clients save hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. Yeah, it's the old adage of price and cost. You save ten or $15,000 on the price and it only costs you a quarter million dollars. Joe, you know, as you've focused in on your career as a specialist, what's the difference between, from an accounting and tax perspective, specialty versus general, being a specialist versus a generalist? Where do you see that come up and what are some of the types of issues that often can be overlooked? Yeah, I think Jerry brought up a great example on that last transaction, but we have so many. I think the biggest thing is just having that industry knowledge where we see specific types of transactions or specific types of issues come up where we really can go in-depth with clients. So we see those on weekly, if not daily basis. And so to Jerry's point earlier, there might be legal or tax advisor that could potentially get to an answer, but is it ultimately the right answer? And if they were in a position to be a proactive advisor to that client, could they have understood what those clients' short-term and long-term goals are, including what a potential exit looks like to help put them in the most tax-efficient exit possible down the road? And so, you know, from a technology standpoint, where I focus a good deal of my time, you know, some of those issues would be state and local tax issues, which create current issues where we're helping minimize effective tax rates. But the, the landscape is so complex and so dynamic currently that we really have to understand our client's business to help them navigate that landscape. And so there's other issues where many CPAs and generalists just don't see a lot of complex equity instruments, stock compensation plans, you know, where we're actively involved as specialists in helping design those plans and providing clients value that way, but also working hand in hand with the legal to reach our clients' collective goals. Yeah, if I can, I mean, two thoughts come to mind for me as Joe says that. One is another deal that Joe and I are working on right now that this deal had largely been packaged before either of us were at the table. This happens a lot, but we got first crack at it. I got first view of it and just saw how it had been set up. And it was, it was fine. You know, a lot of people would set up a deal in this way. And it was a transition of ownership between the current owner of the company to his right-hand man who's going to take over the company. And the advisors at the table had created a solution that would work to get ownership from one guy to the other guy. However, we just took one look at it and said, you are volunteering taxes. I mean, just not knowing to go a step more complex was creating another situation where everybody was volunteering taxes. And so again, called Joe, Joe, come on, Joe, just look at this. And we had another moment where I said, just look at this and tell me if I'm crazy. And he looked at it and he laughed. Yeah, okay. Looks like we're volunteering a lot of taxes on this one. And so we reworked that. But I mean, there's the moments to be more complex and that's important. 
and the ability to know those moments and identify them is important. And so working with a team that can do more complicated deals is great. But then even as Joe was saying that, it also triggered on me the importance of knowing the client's goals, knowing the client's business. I mean, so many times we find it's not that we need to make something more complicated. It's actually that we need to tell the client they don't need us or that what they think they need to do is the wrong path and they can save their money altogether on legal. I think one of my favorite examples is I had a client walk in the door and ask for a certain type of trust. And it's kind of an exotic trust. And we do those, could set them up. I could charge them 25 grand to dive in and get started and say, thank you very much. But instead, I asked them, why do you need this trust? Well, my neighbor has one. Okay, well, that might be fine. But why does your neighbor have the trust? They said, well, I don't know, but he's a smart guy. And so I try to follow his lead. And Okay, well, and so then I was just brainstorming with him. Let me explain to you some of the reasons why people use these trusts. And I gave him a few reasons. Are any of these things true? No, no, none of those things are true for me. Okay, well, let me stretch a little bit. Are any of these things true? And I give him some middle level reasons why someone might want one of those trusts. No, no, none of those things are true. Okay, I'm really stretching now. I'm trying to find any reason why you might want to hire me to do this thing. Are any of these things true? No, none of those are true. Okay, you know what? Save your money. Call me back when you need something because it's not right now. (laughs) And Jerry, going back to that first example you were saying, one thing I found so interesting about that latest transaction was there was a third-party attorney involved in that. And again, it was a very smart tax attorney. The only problem in that case was he made a big assumption in his analysis. The actual research he did was spot on, technically correct, but he made a big assumption about the business without taking the time to understand what the client was doing. And because of that, the analysis and the model that was ultimately created was completely wrong. That's it. That's awesome. That's super awesome. Well, Joe, as we're kind of thinking through some things to talk about today, one of the things I think is interesting is how fluid and dynamic the tax landscape has been and the kind of the regulatory environment. As a business owner, you've got a hundred different things that they need to be focused on and the, the landscape's always changing. Both of you strike me as professionals laser focused on lifelong learning. Jerry, you were so committed to not overpaying on your legal fees. You're like, I will learn law. And all of a sudden you launched your legal career. So Clearly, neither of you are intimidated by lifelong learning. I'm, I'm kind of curious right now, what are you guys focused on? What are some of the things that you're focused on in terms of learning and growing as you try to solve some of these challenges that your clients are wrestling with? So like, what are you learning? And candidly, what are your clients wrestling with right now in 2020, which has been just a wacky, wacky year? Well, before uh, we were dealing with COVID-19 and and all the wrestling with that, I got to say there was a lot of learning and wrestling with cryptocurrency and how it is regulated and how it should be treated as an asset and as a currency and as a security. So we were doing a whole lot of learning around that. But COVID-19 derailed that train a bit. It's still a very active industry, but we had a whole lot of other clients need other things, more meat and potatoes type issues coming up. And one that I'll, that I'll just bring up as an example, because it was so fascinating to me, is we saw that the way the stimulus package was put together actually led to a difference in how mergers and acquisitions were getting done for a period of time, which is fascinating and, and probably not something that was intended as a stimulus package was put together. I mean, everyone will probably understand what I mean when I talk about the PPP. You know, that people were getting this PPP money in order to keep their employees employed. 
and that if they keep their current team employed for a certain amount of time, that becomes forgivable. It's not a loan. It was a grant. It's a forgivable loan. They now get to keep the money. Well, because of how that was structured, and of course, there's even still a lot of question marks on what's going to happen with the PPP and how forgiveness is going to work. But the mergers and acquisitions landscape did not slow down during this period of time where people had to keep employees employed. And if anything, it picked up a bit. There's been a lot of transactions where people just needed to sell to get out from debt loads or get out of other issues. And so a lot of transactions that wouldn't have happened but for COVID-19. So anyway, these transactions are happening. Most times when you're on the sell side, you want a stock sale. But if you're on the buy side, you want an asset sale. And Joe can talk more about all the tax reasons for that. However, because these buyers did not want to jeopardize the forgiveness of the PPP loans, all of a sudden the buyers were saying, well, wait a minute, I need your employees. We don't want your employees to stop working during the forgiveness period. So can we please buy your stock? Can we please keep your entity intact? When we were on the sell side, we said, yes. In fact, I mean, normally we'd be negotiating hard to try to get to a stock sale, but this was buyers suggesting it. So just fascinating to me that something in how the stimulus package is put together would lead to a change in a heavily negotiated point on how M&A happened. Freakonomics, kind of those unintended consequences that show up downstream of a decision. Joe? Yes. What are you seeing from your perspective? What are your clients juggling right now at the end of 2020? And kind of what are the things that you're focused on professionally? Obviously, it's been an interesting year, to say the least. I think at the beginning of the year, my clients in technology and many other industries were looking at record profits. Some more traditional tax planning was in place, looking to accelerate deductions, defer revenue, the merger and acquisition market was strong. And then the pandemic hit and everything flipped. So we became more financial coaches and advisors on how to successfully take advantage of the PPP loans. Do we need to go further than that? What does the next year, two years look like financially for these companies that were flying high? Some of them plan ahead and others are heavily invested into growing the company. And so it hit hard. So we pivoted to help our clients as a firm deal with kind of the ever-changing landscape of this pandemic. And we've certainly seen some ups and downs, and I think it's lasted far longer than most of us ever thought. That's what we've been looking at as, as the end of the year comes. It's creating some interesting tax plan. And not only do we have a pandemic, not to mention the the implications of how PPP loans will be forgiven, what period will they be forgiven, and will those expenses be deductible or not? Could they cross over two different tax periods could create some interesting tax planning issues. Beyond that, we have the obvious election coming up. That's going to create some additional tax planning. And you mentioned free economics. It might create inverse tax planning as well. We might be looking at the acceleration of income and the deferment of expenses. So it's a a little bit opposite. Typically, at the same time, you have to understand your client's business, where things are going, and so you can help them understand all those different levers that can be pulled as we approach year end. Awesome. Jerry, I guess as we kind of wrap up our conversation today, kind of wanted to take it existential. You've walked out this journey of entrepreneurship with countless clients And in many respects, you've had your own entrepreneurial journeys. As you've walked this out personally and as partners of your clients, 
from an existential standpoint, kind of what are people's expectations before an exit? And then when in reality, after an exit, how is it different maybe than what they are anticipating? So I guess you can speak to what what is their anticipation of an, what an exit will be like? And then when they're done, how might it be different than their their original expectations? Sure. Yeah. And and that's a loaded question. I mean, for for context, and Joe knows this, Joe's our family CPA. My wife and I have launched 13 companies now, and we love to launch things. And so yes to being the entrepreneur, being the business owner, while also being an attorney. And I've had a lot of expectations around exits over the years. I've worked with a lot of clients that had a lot of expectations too. And it's always important to think through and even talk with clients about what is the reality of what's coming. I'll say the number one mistake I see, and it happens a lot, is the person who's selling won't be really thinking through what's next and will quite sincerely not take ownership of the fact that their identity is wrapped up in the business that they're selling. And I think that's the most heartbreaking thing that I see quite often. And whenever I'm on the sell side, one of the first things I talk to a owner, operator, seller about is what's next? How much of your identity is wrapped up in this business? What are you going to do after we secure a successful transaction? Because so many times they haven't even thought about it. They've just been on the same treadmill. They've been just working hard. They've been pushing towards this goal. And you'll hear people talk about it in sports. You hear about Olympic athletes that finally hit their gold medal and then they're depressed the next day. I mean, I see this with entrepreneurs all the time where they've been on this journey to create a company, to create it from nothing, to get it in the market, to grow it up and then to sell it. And yes, you've achieved it. And even in sometimes the most successful of exits, then they're ready to go to work again on Monday. But work's not there anymore. And it can be incredibly depressing if how you see yourself as a human being is in your function within that company. And then you've got this intense feeling of loss because the company is gone. You've sold it. And yes, your bank account is way bigger because of it. But they start to second guess, was that the right move? And so I find just by thinking through what can be next in life, that can help actually prepare them for that moment and make sure that they don't have seller's remorse. I mean, people talk about buyer's remorse all the time. I see seller's remorse more often in the role that I play. And I've watched it even tank deals because it all comes to a head right before the transaction closes. Quite sincerely, the craziest version I've ever seen. I was on the buy side. A client of mine in the Portland metro area was going to buy a business that was based out of LA down in Southern California. And deal got negotiated back and forth all the way through diligence. We are ready to sign. We're ready to close the next day. It's a Thursday night. We're going to close on a Friday. And the seller, the CEO, owner of the seller calls first my guy and says, hey, I need to ask you a question. My attorneys won't even ask your attorney because they can't believe I'm asking this question, but it's important. Okay, we'll ask the question. And he said, I just wanted to make sure it's cool that I'm coming to work on Monday. And we said, wait a minute. And sure, in a lot of deals, you want the seller there. There's a transitionary period. They're going to provide consulting services or whatnot. This was not one of those deals. Our client, the buyer, was very experienced in the space. He was taking it over. He was adding it to an existing business structure he already had. The seller did not have a role in the company come Monday. But he thought he still got to come to work. They had not talked about that on their side. And so he reached out to our side just to make sure it's okay that he's coming to work on Monday. My guy had to say, no, actually. Remember, I'm buying the company from you tomorrow. So I'm going to take your parking spot. I'm going to take your office. I mean, I don't want to be too cavalier about this, but it was that 
that boiled down of a conversation of, I'm going to serve that role now. Thank you for getting the company to this spot. I've got it from here. And the guy tried to negotiate. He said, no, I, I need to be able to show up and don't worry. You know, If someone comes to me, I'll send them to you. Tried to negotiate a spot for himself over the next 12 hours. My guy wasn't having it. And so he ended up pulling the plug on the transaction. Instead of closing the next day, the guy didn't sell the business. So, I mean, this really is deep-seated. It's hugely emotional. And a lot of times it gets overlooked. I asked that question, you know, as I have walked this out from Delap's perspective, from a financial planning and investment management perspective, as Joe and I have collaborated on several of these, what I've observed is generally speaking that a lot of the time the exit actually underwhelms, right? It doesn't live up to the expectation, right? Because to your point, an entrepreneur's identity is now wrapped up. And so after the exit, there's this discovery process that needs to occur where they have to rediscover a purpose, a passion, an identity. And so while we're going through some of the financial planning exercises of what does post-exit look like, we often try to integrate in some life planning or personal strategic action planning. What does life after the exit look like more than just financially, but what are you going to do from a purpose, passion, and identity perspective? So actually, Jerry, to kind of help unpack or provoke some of these conversations, we try to connect people to resources with this podcast. So I'll link in the show notes a white paper that we wrote after the exit. And if you're kicking around, what would life look like after the exit? I encourage you to take a peek at that. And I missed a moment earlier when Joe was talking about one of the issues that's pretty predictable with clients that are growing quickly is state and local tax. And Joe, I believe you have a tool from a state and local tax perspective that's been a resource to your clients. Can you direct us to where that would be? And I'll link it in the show notes. Sure. We have a state and local tax nexus tool on our website. And so if we want to add that to the show notes, we can certainly link people to that tool free of charge. And then we can connect you with our state and local tax partner, Harriet Struthers, as well, if there's any questions that come up as a result. Awesome. Well, again, we could probably talk all afternoon. Maybe we'll have to rerun this again in here in the near future. But Jerry, any resources or connections? I guess if people are looking to get connected to Emix, what's the easiest way to, to track you down? And what are some of the ways to stay abreast of some of the legal issues that are impacting this industry? Sure. Yeah. Emix. Uh, so Emixlaw.com is our website. You can find my page up there, my email address best way to get in touch with me is still email. And as far as other resources, even though, again, I practice law by day, I find so many things and so many issues that arise are not actually legal issues, but are different through their business issues or personal issues. And so even as I think through resources, I got to say, I mean, I, it depends on what the issue is, but you wouldn't believe how many entrepreneurs I'll send to a book that has nothing to do with the law. Some examples, there's a book called Unbalanced by Matthew Kelly. Such a good book. It says basically that, you know, we, we all talk about work-life balance so much. He says there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's actually about choices and consequences. So what do you want your consequences to be? And let's make choices according to it. Great book. I'll find so many other issues or interpersonal or communication issues. And so I'll send people to read The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. That's really a relationship book. You know, a lot of people read it as marriage counseling. You wouldn't believe how powerful it is for a manager to read that book who's having communication issues with employees. I mean, that really is so applicable to so many problems in business. 
you know, or I'll just point some people to my favorite Bible story or two, because you wouldn't believe how much wisdom is packed in that book. I mean, there's a crazy book right there. So even though most people look to me for reading resources as it relates to the law, I find so many of the problems aren't about the law at all. Didn't know that you were an avid reader. I'll have to uh, hit you up for some recommendations. I love reading. I've kind of thought of that as a one of the most effective life hacks ever. You know, you sit there and you you have an an expert laser focused on a subject, distill all of that experience, insight, knowledge into two to three hundred pages. You'd be hard pressed. I mean, if it took twenty years to accumulate and learn that, and you can just distill it down to two hundred and fifty pages, that's pretty awesome ROI. So, Jerry, what is your love language? We have to know. My mine is words of affirmation. Although if you're my wife, it's also physical touch. But if you're there not you my go. wife, it's not. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is virtual, so we'll keep it classy. <laughs> words of affirmation. Hey, well, guys, thanks so much for the conversation today. Just a lot of fun to spend some time talking with you about how do you serve a community, a population that's laser focused on positively disrupting our lives? And helping them navigate the complexity and the headwinds that an entrepreneur is going to have to endure to launch and grow a successful business. So I guess until we rerun it again next time, thanks so much. And Jared, if I could, just that that last thing you said triggers in me that I, there's a question I ask all first-time entrepreneurs. And we touched on this a little bit, but again, it's why. Why are you launching this company? And I gave you some of the examples of the wrong answers. Someone wants to be their own boss or someone wants to work half-time. But the right answer, I got to say time and time again, is when someone says, it's my calling. It's what I'm supposed to do. They'll use different words to describe it. Sometimes it's, this thing has to be birthed out of me or my skin is just itching until I bring it into the marketplace. That is the special kind of crazy that will carry them through because there will be problems. There will be obstacles. I've never seen a launch that didn't have them. But to jump those obstacles, to power through those things, it takes that calling. And so I Love the way you said it. The people that are called to disrupt the world for the better. That's where I see success. All right. That is a mic drop, ladies and gentlemen. And until next time, thank you very much.